Uh, we all know this to be true. The power of a great story and how it makes you feel all sorts of different emotions, a range of emotions. If you read a great book or watch a great movie, you may, through the course of that story, you may feel uh, suspense, anxiety, uh, anger even, joy, laughter. By the end of it, you may be crying. I'm talking about Toy Story 3, obviously. I cry, I mean, just thinking about the movie, I tear up. Um, it's it, the power of a great story is in how it makes us feel deeply and think deeply. Well, as we get to John chapter 5, we're beginning chapter 5 today. It's a good time to remind ourselves the, the Apostle John is not storytelling. He's reporting history. We're reading things that actually happened in the life and the ministry of Jesus. But so often in read, there's such a beauty and a depth in how we read John's gospel, that we often just get caught up in the emotional weight of what's happening in Jesus' life and in the lives of those around him. And so as we read these, uh, this, this first portion of John 5 today, I want to give you a promise. You're going to feel a lot of different things as we read. You may feel perplexed for part of this account. Uh, you may feel joyful, and I hope you will. There's a great joy in this story. But I'm going to tell you now, you're also going to get frustrated and even angry by the end of it. Um, you're going to see what I mean as we go. You're going to feel a lot of things here in John 5, and I think we should. Now, by reminder, even if you weren't with us last week, at the end of John 4, we saw last week Jesus perform a healing. A man comes to Jesus whose son is near death, and Jesus, from 20 miles away, speaks the word, and the man's son is healed. Well, right here after it, Right back to back, John gives us another healing story. But the two could not be any more different. And you'll see what I mean. Watch how this unfolds. This is John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After these things, John says, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. <clears throat> now, just for the sake of context, Jesus is doing an awful lot of traveling here in these chapters. Uh, all, just since chapter 4, he was in Samaria. Then he traveled north to Galilee, his home country. Now he's come back down to Jerusalem for a feast. And in the corner of the city, just north of the temple, John tells us there's a pool called Bethesda, which means house of mercy or house of outpouring. There's a pool there where a great many people who were sick, blind, lame, and withered were congregated. This is a place where the most physically needy of the people were placed. And it seems to be that they stayed there, perhaps just during the feast, but maybe they were there all the time. We don't really know. But it was a place where the neediest of people gathered. Why is that? Why were they there? <clears throat> well, there's an interesting little explainer, perhaps in your Bible, at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 3 and <clears throat> then verse 4. We're going to put this on the screen. Notice how it's in brackets. <clears throat> they were there, John says, waiting for the moving of the waters. <clears throat> for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. 
whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. Now, more than likely, your Bible has that little section in parentheses, or maybe there's a little notation. It's possible that your Bible takes it out altogether. Those verses aren't there at all. And there's a reason for that. Y'all, what I just read, the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4, that verse and a half is not in the earliest Greek manuscripts of John's Gospel. Which means it was very likely added in by someone else later on in an effort to explain to the reader why all these people are stationed by the pool. Now, if you've got a good Bible, it's going to tell you when things like this happen when there's a, 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 an edit or a gloss or some later translation has something that the earlier manuscripts didn't contain. The same thing happens at the very end of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to have another one come up in John, in John chapter 8, a big one. And I'm going to spend more time when we get there talking about this. Uh, but I just want to say there's no reason for you to lose confidence in your Bible here. In fact, we should have more confidence that we do have precisely what John wrote, and if there are any variations, then your Bible will tell you so, and you can do your own research. Uh, We we don't have time to to do it right this minute, but if you have questions about how that is or why that is, come find me. Send me a text. Send me an email. I'd love to, to talk to you more about it. I've got an article I can share with you that does a great job of explaining it. See, the bigger issue, though, for me is not who wrote verses 3 and 4 so much as are they true? Is verse 4 true that an angel of the Lord periodically stirred up the pool water and then the first person who could jump in received healing? Um, That Now, this is my opinion, and an opinion shared by many scholars, but my opinion is that that was a popular belief among the people, but more likely a superstition. Uh, And and the reason I think that is, I'm not aware of any place in the Bible where God offers a miracle to the fastest person. The person who can come get it the quickest. I don't tend to think that's how God's grace operates. And so I can be wrong when I say this, and if I'm wrong, that's okay. But I I don't think that this pool operated as a place of healing in that way. I think that was the understanding among the people, and that's what gave these people hope. I mean, what other hope did they have? except that maybe the water would get stirred up and one of us can get in and be healed, right? But see, that's not the point of the, of the story. The point of the story is that hope actually does show up. Hope does enter into the scenario. And his name is Jesus. Look at verse 5. There was a man there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. So based on the context, we we can assume that this man is paralyzed 
John doesn't say that directly, but he's lying on the mat, incapable of getting anywhere on his own. And the story tells us he's been that way for 38 years. Hey, oh, that's how old I am. 38 years in this condition. And Jesus sees this man and comes to him as a stranger. This man doesn't know who Jesus is. And so this stranger walks up and asks the most obvious question imaginable. What we might even say is a foolish question. He looks down at this man and says, do you wish to get well? Of course he wishes to get well. But you notice in the man's response, he doesn't say yes. He, he answers in a way that reveals his perspective and how skewed his perspective had become. He says, I have no man to carry me and put me in the water. So if the water does get stirred up, I've got no way of getting in first. His only hope is built on someone else walking him into the water, perhaps fast enough for him to receive what he needs most. Y'all, it's, it's really easy for us. I, I know it's easy for me. Anytime I read a, 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 an account from the Scripture, there's a sense of detachment I feel. Um, because I wasn't there. You know, none of us were there. And, and this is a very different time and culture that we're reading about. And, and if you weren't there, and if you can't see it with your own eyes, and if you don't know these people, and we don't necessarily know what they look like in most cases, then there's this sense of, you know, I'm reading about it, but I can't really picture it. I can't really feel what I'm supposed to feel. And, I, and I can't, we, can't, we can't manufacture that, but I just, if you want to close your eyes for just a second, you don't have to. I want you to try to picture this great long pool. It's about a 300-foot long pool. It's not a little swimming pool. It's not a hot tub. We're talking about a long pool with a great many people in tremendous agony. And here's this man, this helpless man, who can go nowhere on his own. He's got to be carried. And here by this pool, which they called the House of Mercy, he lies on his straw mat with no one to take care of him. No one to meet his needs. And then one day a stranger walks up to him and their eyes meet. And this stranger says to him, get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Y'all think about the fact that if any other man had said those words, what a cruel joke it would have been to taunt this poor man by telling him to do something that he couldn't possibly do. But when Jesus speaks these words, when Jesus issues the command, immediately the man becomes well and picks up his pallet and begins to walk. These legs that had no muscle left in them. These joints that were locked up tight from years of paralysis. This man whose only hope was for another man to come around and carry him. This man now springs up off the floor and rolls up his little pallet and walks. Jesus creates what He commands. Jesus creates 
what He commands. He speaks the Word and it's done. Y'all, what we saw last week in John 4, Jesus speaks the Word and the, the man's boy is healed. He lives just as Jesus said. And today we see it. The power of God to speak it and it's done. Y'all, I mentioned a minute ago how we have two miracle stories right back to back at the end of chapter 4, at the beginning of chapter 5, and yet how totally different they are. Now this might just be interesting trivia, but I made a slide to show you how different they are, and I want to ask that we would put the slide up. If you weren't here last week, that's okay. Consider what happened in John 4 and now in John 5. We have in John 4 a man who seeks Jesus out, but here in John 5, Jesus seeks a man out. In the last story, the man asks Jesus for healing for his son. In this chapter here, the man doesn't ask for healing. In the last miracle, Jesus heals from 20 miles away, but here He heals up close. In John 4, the healing was private. Very few people even knew about it, but here it's public. And in John 4, that man and his whole family believe they come to faith. Here in John 5, faith is never mentioned. It never comes up a single time in this account. Now, why do I show you this? Y'all, there, there's a temptation for us, if you, especially if you've been a Christian or if you've been around church for a while, we kind of grow accustomed to Jesus and we know a lot of the stories and, and we can even maybe quote some of the sayings that Jesus spoke. And there's a familiarity that it might be a temptation for me to think that I've got Jesus all figured out. I've got Him pinned down. I've, I've created a category for Him and it may even be that I feel like I know how He works. If I do this, then Jesus will do that. If I pray this, then Jesus owes me this. And y'all, I just want to encourage you that you can't pin this man down. He's not a category. He doesn't work by formulas. Jesus Christ is the singular most mysterious, powerful, gracious, wonderful person there ever was or ever will be. And He's simple enough that a little child can know Him. And yet He's deep enough that the greatest scholars will never reach the bottom of who He is. I want to encourage you in this. That you would take your life, however many days God gives you, take your life and devote it to getting to know this divine man. You will never reach the bottom. You will never get Him all figured out. He will always surprise us because there's nobody else like Him. Commit yourself to following Him, trusting Him, worshiping Him, studying Him, knowing Him. It'll change your life. Now, I told you this story was perplexing. Verses 3 and 4. And then joyful. Oh my goodness, the healing we just saw. But I also promise it's going to make you mad. Look at what happens next. Verse 9, a little bitty statement here in verse 9. John says, now, it was the Sabbath on that day. Can I give you a very quick understanding of what Sabbath means here? The Sabbath is the day that God ordained and designed to be a day of rest and worship. We read all about it in the Old Testament. It's one of the Ten Commandments. That the Jewish people, God's people, on sundown Friday to sundown Saturday... That was their Sabbath, and it was a day that God commanded no work to be done. He said, you shall observe the Sabbath and you shall keep it holy. You set that day apart 
in worship of God, and you don't work. And so, of course, Sabbath is a good thing. It's a God-ordained thing. But as people so often do, the people took this good thing and they hardened it and turned it into a legalistic ritual. The Jewish leaders of Jesus' day took the Sabbath command and actually broke it down into 39 commands. 39 things that constituted work that you weren't allowed to do lest you be found dishonoring God in the Sabbath. And if you did one of these 39 things, then that was serious sin. One of those 39, by the way, was carrying something from one place to another. So what do you think is going to happen here? Look at verse 10. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath. It's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Notice that among the Jewish leaders here, not a single one of them remarks on this man's healing. No one acknowledges or rejoices in the healing. This man who was crippled in misery for 38 years, surely they knew who this man was. Suddenly he's walking around the temple and the only response he gets from these Jewish people is, who do you think you are? Carrying your pallet on the Sabbath day. Who told you that was okay? This is stunning. That, that, that these people could be so blinded by their own form of religion that they refuse to see and acknowledge and celebrate the obvious goodness of God. They're incapable of it. They're so hardened that they can't rejoice at the miracle because they're too busy policing everybody else's behavior. And y'all, I want to tell you that this is what happens when religious people build their lives on religion and not on God and His goodness. We will make the, the whole thing about us, about humans, about human rituals and human rules and human behaviors, that's what becomes the center of all that we do when we miss the goodness and the grace of God. Now, let me take a little rabbit trail here with us for, for a moment. I, this doesn't actually happen in the church building so much nowadays as it happens on the internet. Um, Y'all, and there, there, I don't have to preach this, you know this. There is right now uh, a very dangerous presence of mean and hypocritical Christianity on social media. That's where I see it the most, by far. A very hypercritical, legalistic attitude in how people communicate a lot of times on social media. Now, if you're not on social media, that means you're wiser and happier than the rest of us. And I, I, would, I would just encourage you to remain that way. But for those of us who are, um, I just want to call us to bear this in mind, starting with me. If I'm critical, judgmental, mean-spirited, harsh, and exclusive in the things I post, 
That may feel gratifying to me, but it does not lead people to Jesus. That's me acting in the flesh rather than the spirit. That's me policing other people's behavior and choices, which will not, in the end, lead people toward the grace of God. It will only lead people away from it. It's an oxymoron to talk about a mean-spirited Christian. And so I want to caution us in this. That the reason we do it, I don't think I'm being mean when I'm doing it. I think I'm doing what's right. But y'all, look at the Jewish leaders in this story. They were just sure they were on God's side. They were sure that they were the ones protecting God's interests and policing God's laws. But in reality, they did not know God at all. And that becomes clearer and clearer in the conversations Jesus has with them in the Gospel of John. And that's why when Jesus shows up and does something truly gracious and wonderful, it tastes bitter to them rather than sweet. And they try to squash it. We can't become like that. Now I want you to hold on to this thought. We're talking about the Jewish leaders. Yes, that's going to come back up in just a minute. But in the narrative here, Jesus isn't done with this man. And I'm really grateful that we see him again here in verse 14. Look at what happens. Afterward, Jesus found the man in the temple. Notice that for the second time, it's Jesus who seeks him. The man's not looking for Jesus, apparently. Jesus seeks him again and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We're not given any more detail than that. And so it might be easy for us to speculate. Um, I tend to think that this man had some kind of besetting sin in his life that Jesus is pointing to here. Uh, it seems unlikely to me that Jesus is speaking about sin only in general. Uh, we can recall from other places in John already where Jesus speaks to the hidden sins of people's hearts. John 4 is a great example of that. The woman at the well, Jesus knew all about her. He knew all the sins that she'd ever committed. And so we know that Jesus knows the heart of individuals. But here's the key. Not so much that we speculate on what this man's sin could have been, but the command here, sin no longer, Jesus says, so that nothing worse happens to you. Now what could be worse than 38 years of paralysis? Eternity apart from Christ. That's the only thing that could truly be worse than what this man's already experienced. Eternity apart from Jesus. And that's why Jesus is not content to heal this man's physical sickness and then just let him be. He goes and finds him to show him his far greater need. And y'all, I want to say, in this case, this man in John 5 is no different than you and me. His physical circumstances may be so. But in this case, if we're honest and if we reflect on what the Scripture tells us, all of us are incapable of coming to God on our own merits based on our own good works. We are spiritually dead to God. And we're in need of a new life. We're in need of a new birth, Jesus says. And so that's what Jesus has come to do. Not merely to heal physically. Although Jesus 
has done it, and I believe he still does. But that's not his ultimate purpose. It's to bring life to those who are spiritually dead, who otherwise would be separated from God for eternity. And so just like this man, consider there was nothing he could possibly do to deserve what Jesus Christ gave him. In this case, he didn't even ask for it. And yet Jesus poured out His mercy freely and fully on a person who was otherwise helpless and hopeless. And y'all, that's how it works with us. We are hopeless sinners. Helpless and in need of rescue. Nothing that we can do about it unless hope enters in. Unless there's good news delivered to us from on high. And this is the hope that we've been given. That Jesus Christ has entered into the world. And that He laid down His own life. He died on the cross for our sins so that by faith in Him we may be made alive to God. Both now and forever. Hope has entered in for you and me. And you know, so interestingly in this story, I mentioned it in the slide a moment ago, we have no indication that this man ever had faith. Certainly it wasn't faith that healed him. Jesus did not congratulate him for believing. He didn't ask for anything. Jesus just did it. But even after the fact, John doesn't tell us. We don't know. Again, it's not fair to speculate. We certainly hope he did. But we're left with the, with the thread untied. We, we're just not sure. What we do know is that the very last thing this man does, in some form or fashion, he does testify of what really happened. And we see that in verse 15. The last thing we ever see of this man in the Bible. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He might be testifying in faith. He might be ratting him out. We're not really sure. But he makes it known, Jesus did this. Now, how do you think this is going to go? Up until now, the Jewish leaders have been uh, skeptical about Jesus. They've been resistant to Jesus. But beginning right now, they become outright defiant. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because He was doing these things on the Sabbath. But He answered them, My Father is working until now. And I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is a massive turning point in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And it escalates so quickly. I mean, think about how the progression here. The whole fuss started because some guy was carrying his mat on the Sabbath day. And when the man is confronted, he says, don't look at me. The man who healed me told me to do it. And so right at first, what are the Jews mad about? They're mad that Jesus told someone else to break the Sabbath, to break one of their 39 rules. Never mind the fact that he healed the man from an impossible sickness, but they're upset now that Jesus is uh, encouraging Sabbath-breaking. That's their perception of things. 
And look at how Jesus responds. This is a bombshell. He says to them, my father is working even now. And I myself am working. Now what's so crazy about that statement? Remember the one big rule of the Sabbath. No work. That's the one big rule. That 39 rules supported. Here are all the ways that we're going to police your behavior to make sure you don't do any work on the day God said to rest. And so think about now what Jesus is actually saying here. My Father never stops working. His good and gracious purpose is always being fulfilled. He never sleeps. God is always working out His righteousness and His justice and His mercy and kindness in this world even on the Sabbath. And I myself am also working. I myself am also working. Your rules have no claim on me. Why not? I'm the Son of God. The Son of God takes no days off either. <sighs> y'all think about what Jesus is communicating. And y'all, it was perfectly clear. If it's not clear to us, it was clear to them. The Jewish leaders absolutely understood what he was saying. You see it again in verse 18. They're no longer just angry with Jesus. Now they've made up their minds to kill him. He must be destroyed. Because he, being a man, has made himself out to be God. They are perfectly clear on who Jesus claims to be. You and I should be too. This is God in the flesh. And just as the Father is working at all times, so Jesus is doing the Father's will. We'll see that next week. He says it explicitly. I never stop fulfilling the good work of God. Because I am God. <laughs> As we close this message, I want to I point us to a word I've used a couple of different times now already. It's a simple word, hope. And before we talk about the good side of hope, I want to talk about the negative side. And it wouldn't seem like that word would have a negative side. But think about the principal people in this story and where their hope was found. Think first about the paralyzed man that we encounter in need of healing. What was his hope? He says it with his own words. His hope was that a man would pick him up and carry him to the water. His hope was in man. What little hope he had was that somebody would graciously come along and carry him because he couldn't carry himself. But now also think about these Jewish leaders who are on the other end of the spectrum. Where was their hope? Their hope was also in man. Their hope was in themselves because they were convinced that they, in their own good works and good intentions, they could uphold the law of God and make themselves acceptable to Him. Their hope was in man as well. And y'all, I hope we see in this case that both were false and empty. That in reality, the man who was down and out and completely helpless and those who were very proud and strong and who sat in high places, they were in the end both hopeless. Because their hope was not established on the right person. Their hope was in themselves, in the mirror, in someone else, 
But only in the end does Jesus Christ provide what they both need. And y'all, I want to say this. Whether you feel down and out or whether you feel very good about yourself, the same applies to us. In equal measure, we all come to the same place. We need the hope that only God can provide by a gracious hand. And so if we ask the question truly, what if the Son of God Himself really did enter the world? What if we're reading the report of history and not just an interesting story? Then it's true, if Jesus Christ is who He says He is, then He alone has truly the power to heal, as this story dictates and declares. He alone has the power to save. And if Jesus' words are true, that even today, May the 2nd, 2021, if God is still working today, and if Jesus Himself is still at His work right now, then that means right now Jesus is still bringing His saving grace to sinners like me and you. He hasn't given up. He takes no days off. He doesn't have to sleep. And He doesn't get worn out. He's always doing the good and gracious will of God. And therefore, we can have hope today that the one who says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, that what Jesus is communicating negatively, we can also celebrate positively. We'll see this next week. Jesus will say, if you behold the Son and believe in Him, you are saved and you will never pass into judgment because you have passed out of death and into life. That's our hope. And so as we pray and as we sing, my hope this morning, and, my, and I hope this is true for you, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Would you pray with me? Father, what a gift this moment is to set our eyes on a Savior. Knowing, and I pray, Lord, that we would know for a fact, we cannot pin Him down. We cannot control Him. We don't get to dictate how He does it, who He heals, when He heals, who He saves. And we, I pray, Lord, that we are thankful this morning that Jesus Christ is free and sovereign and powerful and wonderful and gracious. That He can look at any one of us in our despair and command a miracle. And it's done. And even greater than the miracle of physical healing Father, you through your Son, Jesus Christ, will grant us the miracle of saving grace. That we might be, rather than separated from Christ forever, that we might be intimately unified to know Him and treasure Him face to face for eternity. Father, would you perform that miracle even now? In this room or online? Or in, a, or in the church down the street, Lord, where the gospel is being preached? Or in the church in Pakistan? 
Father, wherever it is that it pleases You to make Your Son Jesus Christ known and treasured, Lord, bring Your grace to our hearts. Thank You that hope has come in the form of a person we can know and trust. Thank You for Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that we, would, that we would have no greater ambition than to look to Him and know Him, to study Him, to walk with Him, to trust Him and worship Him. Thank You, Father, that You did not spare Your own Son, but You delivered Him over for us all. May we believe it, and may we treasure Him as He deserves today in Christ's name. Amen.